Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, I'm here to talk of the stories of films. The title gives it away, really, doesn't it? I talk about the production stories, development stories, behind-the-scenes stories, all the little bits and bobs that go to make the uh, go towards making the films that we know and love, just that, the films that we know and, well, and sometimes love. Although I am really quite fond of the two films I'm going to talk about in this week's episode of the podcast. I do talk about two films in each episode they tend to be quite mainstream leaning they're films i invested in or interested in to some degree as well i don't do snark lots of options out there if you're after a bit of snark and that's not me being snarky about people who are into snark or who are snarky it's just not my thing and instead i just like waffling about movies and that's what i'm going to do so i'm going to play you a clip of the first of the two films i'm going to talk about in this episode of the podcast and then i'll crack on with the story the other side of this They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. And that then was a snippet of the trailer from 1997's brilliant L.A. Confidential, directed by Curtis Hansen. Hansen wrote the screenplay with Brian Helgeland, based on the novel by James Elroy. The cast for this one, led by Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, James Cromwell, Kim Bassinger, Danny DeVito and David Strathairn, all in the ensemble, and an outstanding ensemble it is. The, obviously, the story of this one, Gaines, as it's adapted from a novel, began with the novel. James Elroy's book of the same name was published in the late 1980s and it was a big book. It still is a big book. And as Elroy said uh, of his of his own book, it, it's a book for the whole family if the name of the family is Manson. The novel was published then for the first time in 1990 and one of the people who read it was director Curtis Hansen, the late director Curtis Hansen, who at this stage had uh, his best film probably at this point was Bad Influence that came out in 1990. I think it's a hugely underrated movie. Um, he would go on to do The Hand That Rocks the Cradle in 1992 and The River Wild in 1994 but with no, with no disrespect meant to him, I think few people off the back of that back catalogue quite saw the brilliance of LA Confidential coming and I think there's some fine films there. I, again, I think Bad Influence is a really strong one. But he read the book, he was hooked into the characters, he loved the idea of the, exp- the exploration really of the difference between the image and reality of law enforcement and of, of Los Angeles in the area in which the book was set. 
One person who also read it, of the many, was executive producer, well, the ultimate executive producer, David Wolper, and he optioned the book very quickly in 1990 after its publication. His wife had read it and recommended it to him. He read the book and devoured it, and he really saw something in it straight away. It was a, a complex book, it, uh, generally regarded as too big for a film, and so Wolper had the idea, long before really this, uh, this would have been snapped up instantly of doing it as a television miniseries but if you were shopping a television miniseries around in america in the early 1990s hbo and the and, and the cable outlets w were just not there netflix certainly wasn't there and so you would go into the mainstream american networks and they just simply wouldn't touch such a hard-edged crime drama in the meantime, Elroy had described his, his book as movie adaptation proof, and it was looking that way. Curtis Hansen, though, really wanted this. He really hooked into it, and he really wanted to be the person to try and bring this to the screen. And so he had a meeting with David Wolper and really put across his vision and really what, how much he wanted to do this and how he, he wanted to tackle the project. And Wolper, Julie, did, did a deal with him in the end to write and direct, ultimately direct the movie. But separately to Curtis Hansen chasing the project, there was someone else chasing the movie as well. And that was screenwriter, screenwriter Brian Helgeland. Now, Helgeland had... I mean, his, his first produced movie was 1988's A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. He was one of the writers on that. He also did 976 Evil. And But then again, I mean, he had a catalogue of film credits at that point. I mean, Assassins with Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas was his highest profile film up till the release of 1997. That was notoriously a film that the Wachowskis were involved with as well and had it chewed up a little bit by the system. But there was nothing really in Helgeland's back catalogue that suggested he would be ideal to adapt LA Confidential. But nonetheless, he was an, clearly an up-and-coming screenwriter. He was on the books of Warner Brothers because the studio had hired him to do a film with director Uli Edal. Um, and, and this was going to be a Viking movie. It was a Viking movie that got nowhere. The project was ultimately abandoned. And so then Warner Brothers put him to work on what would have been a King Arthur film. But then that didn't happen either. But he was zeroing in on L.A. Confidential. And he was trying to get a meeting with Warner Brothers to pitch how to do the book. And it was pretty well known at this stage, even though the identity of the writers wasn't revealed, that the studio had been talking to lots of big name writers about adapting adapting Elroy's book into a screenplay. However, Helgeland managed to bag himself a meeting, a meeting with Warner Brothers, so that he could pitch his idea for LA Confidential. And then two days before he got he was due to have that meeting, he got a call from the uh, he got a call from the studio, or his agent did, cancelling said meeting. The problem was Curtis Hansen had got there first, just two days before Hansen had been hired to take the project on. 
However, these two stories came together when Hansen got a call from Brian Helgeland's agent saying, you've really got to meet him. He's really, you know, he's as into this project as you. It's worth just having a conversation with him. Now, at this point, Curtis Hansen was in the midst of preparing the River Wild. He was working for Warner, uh, for Universal at the time. He had an office uh, in a small bungalow on the Universal lot. And so he invited Brian Helgeland over to his office at Universal while he was prepping and, and putting the with River Wild together. And the two of them had a conversation about LA Confidential. And as it turned out, the two of them were roughly in tune as to where this project should go. They both felt that it was far too big a book to adapt into uh, to adapt into a movie verbatim. I don't think books should ever be adapted into movies verbatim, but nonetheless, they realised quite a lot of the narrative was going to have to be cut down. What they what they wanted, though, they both believed that you preserve the character base uh, and these three core characters at the heart of uh, at the heart of the story, and zero in on certain plot elements and set pieces that they wanted. So again, trying to go spoiler light on the film. There's uh, the there's a bloody Christmas sequence early on in the movie. There's also a murder at a coffee shop called the Night Owl, and they wanted these to be key sequences in the movie. And they agreed to work together. They decided that you know that, that they should pull their resources on it, and they decided to press ahead and co-write the movie together. Now, a lot of this story is told in a really excellent article, which is available online in the Dallas Observer, that was published around the time of the film's release. And it talks about just what an intensive process it was to di- to digest really Elroy's story into a, a movie-sized screenplay. It was a two-year process in the end to get the screenplay into some kind of working shape. Helgeland, and again, this was him early in his career, were, he, he would turn down other jobs just to keep writing and writing and writing this particular script. He would do subsequent drafts of the script for free, and the pair worked together for a long period of time before they felt confident to take the script to James Elroy himself. But that's what they did. They got to a point where the draft they felt was ready. And so they showed that they they sent it to him to see what he thought and awaited his reaction. And his reaction was to ask them to dinner, which they took as a good sign. And on the whole, he was pleased with their work. He was pleased that he, he, he pleased that they kept the three-man structure, these characters of Bud White, Ed Exley and Jack Vincennes, and had condensed it into something that could work as a movie. But even so, this was not going to be a small movie and it was going to be a difficult movie to put together and not the kind of traditional fare that movie studios in the 1990s were making, notwithstanding the fact that Warner Brothers had the option on the property. There were going to be 45 locations. There were going to be 80 speaking parts. It was not a movie star role as well. I mean, in the 1990s, a movie star could still transform a project and and give it an opening weekend. But in this instance, there wasn't an overt movie star role to it. It was an ensemble piece with lots of lots of characters really striking through. And so a character driven movie with studio backing of the the, the size really that L.A. Confidential needed to be was a, a rarity, really. And so Warner Brothers 
who uh, they had a decision to make at this stage and what it did is it brought in regency who was one of the production companies who had an an overall deal with the studio and it was uh it was a man called billy gerber who got them to regency and regency at the point was uh, run by arnon arnon milchen and michael nathanson who would ultimately go on and produce the film they had this deal at the studio, but they would still need convincing that under that deal, L.A. Confidential should be one of the projects that they took on. So Curtis Hansen had a meeting with Arnon Milchen and Hansen approached this in a slightly different way because what he didn't want Milchen to do was read the script. He didn't want him to have a look at the screenplay and imagine the film as he would make it. So what he did was he instead, Curtis Hansen, gathered together around 17, 18 photographs, some of them from his personal collection. And they were vintage shots. Um, This is a a film set in Los Angeles in the 1950s. And the shots that that, that Hansen pulled together were reflective of that. And they reflected, really, the movie of his dreams. They showed old old movie stars in there. They showed some some of the locations in there. But also what he then put in the midst of it was a copy of a scandal magazine called, ironically enough, Confidential. In the midst of it all, getting across the fact that underneath this veneer was quite a seedy world. And so there was one of the shots was a shot of uh, the actor Robert Mitchum coming out of prison after a, a marijuana charge. And it was just trying to explore visually the idea of perfect people and what's slightly going on in their lives underneath what we sometimes see. Milchen was swept up by this pitch and he wanted to work with Curtis Hansen and he wanted to make the film and he said at the end of the presentation that he saw the movie in Hansen's eyes and he agreed to make it pretty much there and then on the spot. Thus, the director was going to be Hansen, there was a screenplay, there was the small matter then of pulling together a cast and Hansen wanted actors who the audience was not overly familiar with he wanted the audience to discover the characters with as they watched the film and not be distracted by huge stars and so at that point russell crowe was a relative unknown but hansen had seen him in what crowe's breakthrough role it's an astonishing performance in the film romper stomper um and crowe in this one plays a neo-nazi skinhead and it's a really really arresting and and you know troubling character and an astonishing performance in that role and so off the back of that Hansen was a fan of Russell Crowe and he asked to asked him to fly over to Los Angeles which he duly did and he he was put on camera just doing a scene which uh, is available online actually if you look on YouTube you can find that scene and he took the he took the tape of that scene to Arnold Milchen and Arnold Milchen was was in agreement with his director that Crow really was something special Guy Pearce, meanwhile, well, for those of us in the UK, he was he was familiar to us through uh, Neighbours, of course, for a long period of time. Also, he'd had a breakthrough movie role in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But this was not a film that Curtis Hanson wanted to watch um, because he wanted to when, when he knew he was going to meet Guy Pearce, he wanted to come to him cold. He didn't want to see he didn't want to watch back episodes of Neighbours, bizarrely, but also he didn't want to avoid Priscilla. Pris- not 
out of any problem with Priscilla, more that he, he just wanted a clean slate when he saw this potential actor. And so, again, Pierce came in and sat down and read for the part of Ed in the movie and won the director over. So Curtis Hansen then gave him a little bit of extra direction. He did another screen test. That was put on camera. That screen test was put on a Milchen. Milchen, again, was backing his director. But all of a sudden, what they had with LA Confidential was a period movie that was going to cost a fair amount of change to make, set in America, that had two Australian leads and no stars in it. James Cromwell, he came in off the back of Babe. He was riding high at the time. I've covered Babe in a previous podcast and he got Oscar nominated for that role. So that gave it a little bit of profile. Uh, he took on the role of Dudley Smith in the film. But then at this stage and appreciating the troubles with, uh, with with Kevin Spacey subsequent, at the point he was cast in the movie, he was riding high off the back of the usual suspects. And he was about the highest profile name in the film. Not at this stage someone who could open a movie, but not nonetheless again brought it a bit of profile he was Hansen said that he received some real resistance to the, the to just zeroing in on these three lead characters as well that there was pressure to turn LA Confidential into a film based around the character of Bud White to have one single lead character rather than these this trio including of Exley Vincennes and Bud White and what this meant was if he went with Bud White just as the pure lead character there could be a movie star in that role when he pushed back and said he wanted the three of them then the three of them were vital to it that was that that brought the potential budget of the film down to around 10 15 million dollars that's all he was going to be able to get to make it that in turn restricted some of his casting options as well but then it tallied into the fact that Hanson wasn't after high profile actors ultimately he did get a slight well he did get a higher budget and also he did get a bit of extra gravitas on the ensemble as well just in terms of experience when Kim Passenger uh, uh, agreed to take on one of the key roles in the film she was sent the script was attracted by just the quality of the dialogue in it and the fact that Hanson was really adamant that she was right for the role she apparently turned down LA Confidential a couple of times beforehand but Hanson was absolutely persistent and Passenger said in some of the promotional material for the movie that it was really rare to see a character piece uh, like this from a major studio and even though she hadn't been in a film for a couple of years at this point she was ultimately persuaded to sign on Danny DeVito also came on to the ensemble and the cast had come together that cast was still going to need a a degree of direction of course so Kevin Spacey was told that the touch point for his character should be Dean Martin for instance the kind of suaveness of Dean Martin uh, and the gloss of Dean Martin which would uh, allow the film again to explore what goes on slightly under the surface in terms of his two leads, though, uh, his two other leads, uh, Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce, well, Hanson wanted to bring them over to Los Angeles early to get them prepared. And so what happened in both of those in both of their cases is he brought them over to L.A. two months ahead of the start of production so that they could get used to the city, get used to the feel of the piece. And Hanson was one who would rehearse his cast as well well and those rehearsals were again allowed them to uh, allowed them all to settle into their roles 
the pair were introduced to real life cops they were shown old police training videos they got dialect coaches guy pierce um was was paired up with one police officer who infamously around the time said he, he found it very uncomfortable because he was paired with quite a racist police officer he what hansen also did was he he in the the rehearsals went on for 6 weeks in all where it, and he brought in brian helgeland as part of that rehearsal process and they went through each scene in the script but also more actors were being cast as those rehearsals were going on and so the rehearsals got bigger and bigger and bigger but just before the start of production, well, Hansen had hired Dante Spinotte to film the movie, to be his director of photography. And he had a, he had a view of what this film should look and feel like, because even though the film was set in the 1950s and coming out in the 1990s, he wanted the film to be shot in a contemporary style. He didn't want it to be a film noir. The idea was to use natural lighting as much as possible. Um, um, to use locations in and around the Los Angeles area that didn't really have an overtly period feel to them as well. Uh, he, he, he was absolutely adamant that he, he didn't want this to feel like a period piece. The production finally got underway. Well, the filming got underway on May the 6th, 1996, and it would run through till the 22nd of August, 1996. And the budget, predictably, had gone north. It had gone above that 15 million, uh, that 15 million target that was originally put forward by Warner Brothers. Um, and the movie would ultimately cost 35 million to make. It was an intensive production given the huge amount of locations involved. I mean, it's quite rare to have a Hollywood film do that I talked about in the last episode of Film Stories Catch Me If You Can uh, that, that had a similar approach in terms of just zipping around lots and lots of locations also David Fincher films uh, tend to be very location heavy but this was a very demanding film given that the budget it was working to and also the size of its cast Hansen then, once the once filming was complete, he went into his edit suite and they put together the first cut of the movie. And this was the one where Arnon Milchen and an assortment of executives from Warner Brothers would be seeing the film for the first time. Inevitably, when Hansen and his team put the first cut together and put that screening together, they were nervous about it. And Arnon Milchen uh, gave an interview where he said he he walked out of the screening room and saw lots of executives with notes as is generally the way in an early screening of a film at a studio and he turned to them and he said you put the notes away and he said he had no notes at all he he thought the film didn't need their input he said at that point walking out the first screening I appreciate he's hardly going to slam it but he said he felt it was a masterpiece he felt it was something special um Elroy too was was pleased with the movie although i'll come back to him a little bit uh, j just to tie the story up in a, in a second there was the matter of getting the score together that when Hansen and Helgeland were writing the script, they they had songs particularly in mind for moments in the film. And those are the ones that you also get in the film. But because they'd written them in from the start, what it meant is when they were shooting the movie, they were able to play that music on set as well for the benefit of the actors. But it presented a, a challenge for composer Jerry Goldsmith as well. Now, Goldsmith had just been working with Hansen on the river 
River Wild. And River Wild's a fine film, by the way, if you've not checked it out. And he needed to put together, Goldsmith needed to put together a score that worked with the pre-chosen songs for the movie. It had to feel like it was in the same film as the song. And what was noted was that a key instrument in lots of the songs that Hansen had chosen was the trumpet. And that's why the trumpet is very heavily uh, featured in the score that Goldsmith ultimately put together. The movie then was de- it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in 1997. And this was something that Hansen rather than Warner Brothers pushed for. Warner Brothers was fairly reluctant to be a big studio movie at, at, at a festival such as Cannes. They felt that there was a kind of anti-studio feeling at the Cannes Film Festival. Hansen, though, really wanted to put his film out at, at, at a festival of its ilk. And so what they did is they went round Warner Brothers. They sent a print to the committee of the Cannes Film Festival without Warner Brothers' knowledge. The committee loved it. And... And as Elroy said in an interview around the same time as well to, to the Dallas Observer again, he said, I understood in 40 minutes or so that it is a work of art on its own level. It was amazing to see the physical incarnation of the characters. So after its Cannes premiere, the reviews were really, really, really strong and rightly really strong as well. I think it's really some film. And Warner Brothers released the film in cinemas in September 1997. We didn't get it until the end of October here in the UK it did a, it did a slowly expanding release which was a bit more commonplace then so opened it in under 800 on under 800 screens and gradually expanded it as a claim went as a claim built up for it by the end of its run it had made nearly 65 million dollars at the American box office done roughly the same again in the rest of the in the rest of the world and also it had attracted the interest of and rightly so of awards bodies now it's it, it was back Bad luck that it was up against Titanic and in the 1997 Academy Awards, uh, it was Titanic that swept the board, which left room for two Oscars for the movie in the end uh, for Best Supporting Actress for Kim Bassinger and for Best Adapted Screenplay for Curtis Hansen and Brian Helgeland. Um, I do think uh, that the, the pedigree of the movie lives on probably more than any other of those films that was nominated in 1997. More recently, there were plans um, um, ironically enough, to turn it into the TV miniseries that uh, Walper had originally envisaged. And in 2003, a pilot of LA Confidential was produced starring Kiefer Sutherland, but that just didn't get past the pilot stage. Elroy himself would talk about the film at the Hay Festival in 2019 and he was he was more critical than he had been of the film. He described it as, quote, about as deep as a tortilla. And he says, quote, and if you watch the action of the movie, it does not make dramatic sense. Um, he did say he didn't like the bulk of the performances in it. But then conversely, he also said that he feels it's about the best of the adaptations of his novels on the screen today. I don't really by Elroy's criticism of it but it's his book and so he he's far more vested in it than I could possibly be I just think LA Confidential is an extraordinary film and if you haven't had the pleasure do go and seek it out which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. A couple of things then. If you like this podcast, I'm an independent, so any support you can give just helps enormously. If you can subscribe at your podcast repository of choice, that's wonderful. If you can leave me, ideally, a hugely positive review, that's wonderful. If you want to financially support, I, I, there's no obligation on you to do so, but I'm at patreon.com slash Brew. That also helps the upkeep of the clickbait-free uh, Film Stories 
Stories website at www.filmstories.co.uk. One thing I'm doing while we're all stuck in lockdown, which we are as this is being recorded, I'm continuing to offer uh, free ad slots in the middle of this podcast to other independents. So I'm just going to shut up for a minute and just hand over to someone else who just wants 20 seconds of your time. Hi, Film Story listeners. If you are spending the lockdown re-watching all your favourite action films from the 80s and 90s, then you might be interested in the book Born to be Bad, where I interview all the actors who played the most famous villains from your favourite action heroes. It's available at all local bookstores and Amazon, as well as borntobebad.co.uk. And I'm back, and I'm going to crack on with the second of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode. I'm going to 2010. I'm going to a comedy I really like an awful lot. I'm going to play you a clip. I'll come to the story the other side of this. Did you get a job yet? No. I have feelers out. Lots. So you're a fan of our morning program? How many? Yeah, yeah, we know it's terrible. Coming up tomorrow, we'll show you what to do with those shampoo bottles with just an inch of shampoo left. Daybreak's understaffed, underfunded. Any producer who works there will be publicly ridiculed, overworked, on the paid. Awful. I'll take it. That, then, is a snippet of the trailer for 2010's Morning Glory, directed by Roger Michelle, written by Aline Brosh McKenna, and starring, I mean, what a cast for this one, Rachel McAdams, Harrison Ford, Diane Keaton, Jeff Goldblum leading the ensemble of this one, Patrick Wilson in the in the mix there as well. You get Ty Burrell for your money, too. And the story of this one started with screenwriter Aline Brosh McKenna. She had, I mean, she built up so some pedigree by this point already and has gone on to do really wonderful things since as well. So she co-written uh, the film Three to Tango. She co-written Laws of Attraction. And then she hit big with the screenplay for the adaptation of The Devil's Wear the devil wears prada she went on to write 27 dresses as well and she came to morning glory not quite knowing the connotations of the the phrase morning glory in certain parts of the world as she's freely admitted um wanting to tell the story of a young woman trying to find her way in the workplace and so she got to pitch the idea for this story as a career was building up to J.J. Abrahams and J.J. Abrahams uh, had his bad robot production company that was set up uh, with a deal at Paramount Pictures at the time and he was Abrahams was instantly keen on the idea he said quote I love that Aline was going for a high energy old school feeling like the movies of Preston Sturges and so Abrams encouraged McKenna to press ahead and put together a screenplay for the film and she delved into it with with some gusto that the research started in earnest. She went behind the scenes. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Morning Glory is set uh, around uh, morning TV shows in the US, the breakfast TV shows in the US, all of which are based out of New York, as is the film. And so one thing that McKenna was able to do from the start is she went behind the scenes of those tv shows and she was looking for the stories in the midst of all of that and she saw she zeroed into a degree on the warring ratings between the competing morning shows and that serves as the ultimate backdrop to the screenplay that she put together and she also saw that there was a, a kind of uh, trying to marry up the the serious news angle and being a morning entertainment show 
low. And so her screenplay again reflects that with two characters who come at it from slightly different sides. The character of Becky and the character ultimately played by Harrison Ford in the movie, the grizzled old news anchor uh, Mike Pomeroy. Now, McKenna is part of the Excellent Script Notes podcast, uh, started as a guest, and now her appearances are, are, are far more regular on there, and uh, thankfully. And she said she said to Script Notes, she was talking about the film, she said, quote, I wrote uh, a few that were, there were sort of women, a few films that were sort of women in the workplace trying to balance their life. And that was just Prada was brought to me. Morning Glory was something that I wanted to show the first time a woman has real responsibility in a workplace. So that was a different spin on that. She also talked uh, to script mag about the evolution of the script that she put together and she talked particularly about the character of becky who's the central character in the movie ultimately played by rachel mcadams and i'll be coming to her shortly and she said in the early drafts that the character of becky was not as much as an of an underdog as we ultimately see in the final cut of the movie that uh, as the script developed she her her outsider status became more and more and more pronounced and also in the original screenplay there was the early drafts that she wrote the character of Becky's mum was in there um, but the, the, the character at that point was cut out during the development of the film and the whole idea was that Becky's mom isn't particularly helpful and supportive and this was actually a decision that would be revisited after the film had finished shooting that, uh, that when they looked at what they had McKenna realised that they needed a character in the film that showed how low the expectations were for Becky herself and she said quote uh, McKenna said quote I worked on clarifying that her dream is ridiculous for the people in her life specifically her mum who was rewritten into the screenplay and there were reshoots on the movie and this this was one of them and in came Patty Darben, Darbenville to play uh, Becky's mum in the film but that was just an example of how the, the the central character in this film evolved before during and after the production of the movie Work on the screenplay was disrupted by the Writers Guild of America strike of late 2007 that I'll come to shortly. It does make following the chronology of it just a little bit fiddly, so I've kind of done my best with that. That the script was being polished throughout the summer of 2008, and Bad Robot at this point was more and more making it a priority project. Now, it was in its early stages and was at a point where it wanted to work on one feature at a time ideally it had this development deal with Paramount but J.J. Abrams at this point was in the midst of completing his first Star Trek film for the studio I've dealt with that in a I've covered that in a previous episode of the Film Stories podcast but with Star Trek now heading towards completion Paramount wanted to keep the pipeline going and it was keen on Morning Glory not least because Harrison Ford had been attracted to the project now, J.J. Abrams and Harrison Ford had, and this was pre-Star Wars, worked together before that one of the very first screenplays that Abrams had sold was regarding Henry, which was a, an early 90s vehicle for, uh, Harris, for Harrison Ford. If you go back to the podcast I did on Hot Shots Part Duh, regarding Henry was a surprising uh, possible influence on where that film could have gone. But Harrison Ford was the top choice from day one to play Mike Pomeroy in, in this movie. 
movie. And the problem was that Ford hadn't really done a comedy for some time. Now, he'd done Sabrina in 1995, which was ostensibly a comedy, but it wasn't a hugely successful one. But the one that I can't help but point to is The Brilliant Working Girl. And since then, it's surprising how little outright comedy work that he's done. I think the character of Indiana Jones clearly has comedic elements to it, but he'd resisted doing outright comedies on the whole. He saw the he, he was sent the scripts to Morning Glory then and he was quickly interested on board. I think it's worth noting that in the 2000s that it, it was it was a bumpy time really on the big screen for Harrison Ford that kicked off with What Lies Beneath, huge hit. Uh, but then films such as K-19, The Widowmaker, Hollywood Homicide, Firewall, where he played a computer hacker. That's a hoot. Um, they just hadn't really worked. He'd done Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008. I will come to that in the podcast at some point um but he was coming to morning glory uh, ultimately um uh, he would come to it off the back of doing two sm- two dramas crossing over and extraordinary measures and so at the point he signed up he uh, indiana jones was just got was completed his work on that was done save for the promotion of the movie but with him on board and returning to indiana jones that was that was the box office star theoretically in place for the film with ford interested the movie was going to be going to be happening paramount was going to pay for it a director now could be sought for the project and so the script was sent through to roger michelle who scored big in the world of, of comedy with notting hill but he's done so such a terrific range of work. I mean, Changing Lanes, Enduring Love, Hyde Park on Hudson, for instance, instantly spring to mind. A huge amount of theatre work uh, also, uh, as well as a lot of work with the BBC. And he he, he said that I, I've wanted to come to America and make a film that would bring a lot of people joy. And when I read this script, I felt it had terrific potential. It was based in a real recognisable world, the world of morning television, but one that was also far more seductive and interesting than I imagined. And Michel has said in interviews that he goes to America to make big films because that's where you make big films. But also he brings a bit of independent spirit to it as well. But with him on board, development on the movie could continue. This is where the timeline's just slightly muddled, because even though Harrison Ford, for instance, wasn't announced until the end of 2008 as starring the film, he was clearly involved with it beforehand. And as McKenna said on uh, on one of the Script Notes podcasts, at the point Michelle st- um, came on board, then the Writers Guild of America strike kicked in. And so that would put all this coming together towards the end of 2007. When the strike lifted, McKenna rewrote the script. More of the casting could get underway. And with Ford on board, she could tailor more of the script around him as well. And Michelle had input in it. Harrison Ford is notable for being uh, hands-on with the development of the characters and the material that he's involved with. If you go back to the podcast I did on Traffic, in which he was due to star, he had uh, he, he had some positive influences on that project, even though he ultimately didn't take the lead role in it. But there was also, crucially then, the other lead role uh, of Becky in this film. Now, there's, I've seen one or two news stories that suggested that Reese Witherspoon was considered or was linked with the role. I didn't see anything concrete that she'd entered firm discussions or turned it down or anything like that. 
Um, but ultimately, the, the Michelle, uh, Roger Michelle, and the team behind the movie zeroed in on Rachel McAdams. Now, Rachel McAdams, who I just think is brilliant. Again, I covered Game Night before. I love Game Night. I talk about it an awful lot. But at the point we are here, she'd uh, she'd appeared in Wedding Crashers, which was really a breakthrough, as well as The Notebook, and she comes out of The Hot Chick as well, opposite Rob Schneider, and she got real acclaim for that in the midst of uh, what you could say is a slightly modelled film. At the point she was uh, she was uh, filming Morning Glory the project she'd also just shot and was taken on were Sherlock Holmes, Time Traveller's Wife, State of Play a real, you know, a really good eclectic mix of staff she though was she took some convincing to start in this one and surprising perhaps given that it's her first Hollywood lead, outright lead role really um, but she didn't feel she was right for as the story goes for an outright comedic role and Morning Glory is a comedy and so it took a few uh, it took a few meals and chats with Roger Michelle to convince her otherwise and she, uh, clearly she was attracted to the idea she admitted of working opposite someone like Harrison Ford but also she would go on to say she wasn't originally aware as to just how physical some of the comedy in the film was going to be and that was something that Roger Michelle really pushed for in the movie and she was ultimately persuaded to sign on to the film and she then worked with Aline Brosh McKenna to get to know the, her, her character backwards and forwards and, and really kind of tune her and, and, and get her into a position where she was comfortable playing the role. There were still casting coups ahead as well. Diane Keaton is excellent in the movie as Harrison Ford's co-anchor in the film. Jeff Goldblum takes on a small ensemble, uh, a small uh, cameo in there in the ensemble as well. In terms of Ford and Keaton, the whole idea was sort of mirroring the kind of uh, Tracy and Hepburn kind of uh, rapport to their sparky conversations. Uh, I think that really does come. Uh, the sparks between Keaton and Ford and the kind of snarky conversations between them are quite biting and brilliant. And Ford delivers them in a superbly deadpan way. And Keaton playing against that is just great as well. Michelle and this this is where I cross over really with LA Confidential were was really really insistent on rehearsing his actors he comes from a, a theatre background and he believes in the rehearsal process and also said in interviews around the time Morning Glory came out a strong believer in preparation and that he's a director who he's he's admitted he says that he finds the actual process of shooting the film the least enjoyable part of filmmaking and he's one who likes to iron out the problems and iron out any issues as much as possible in the preparation stage. And the rehearsals thus featured a lot of to and fro as they worked out the key character beats and they worked out the, 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 the assorted moments of the film and, and, and kept tuning them in the rehearsal process. Michel was determined that he wanted this to be a quick film. He was taking influence from uh, the kind of newspaper comedies of the 1930s, as he would say. And so tempo was a big thing for him. He was he, he made the decision that he, what he didn't want to do was shoot this as a romantic comedy. And he's, again, it's not a romantic comedy. He saw it as a workplace comedy, which it is. And so he was looking to use more tracking shots over lots of close ups. And also, as McAdams would say in an interview, he saw it as a, a wish fulfillment uh, movie to a degree. So there's, again, go spoiler light as I try to do, there's, 
there's a moment where there's a potential for McAdams' character Becky to to land a particularly impressive job and there's an office building that goes up really high that Michelle just gave the shorthand of heaven to. Filming was finally ready to begin then in 2009 and production started on the 28th of May 2009. The movie would shoot through the summer to 10th of August 2009 and it would shoot in and around New York. It would shoot very openly on location. This was one of those films where you saw lots of pictures of the stars out in the open in New York City that would thus appear on websites and in newspapers etc. And this was a movie that really did seem to embrace the idea of going outdoors and, and shooting out, the, out in the open when and where it could. For Rachel McAdams, if she was in any doubt that she was shooting a comedy, um, and, and going back to the point, I, the, the, the little bit I mentioned earlier about the, the physicality of the comedy, day one of her work of her working on the film featured a sequence where she falls down the stairs, and she was she was introduced very much to kind of the physicality of the comedy from day one. She had done her homework before taking on this film, though. Before she arrived on set, she too had gone behind the scenes on the. American American morning show so good morning America today the early show and she'd seen how it worked what made it tick and and again coming back to the fact the pace and the tempo of it which is a, a crucial ingredient of morning glory that it is such a fast-paced film there is a moment in the film that perhaps doesn't mean as much to us in the UK as it would to audiences in the US where real life news veterans Morley Safer, Chris Matthews and Bob Schieffer appear in a cameo and this this is a, a, quite, a, quite a big deal really They're, they the three of them sit around with Harrison Ford's character and this was a logistically taxing scene to put together in that they only had a very short amount of time to shoot and Ford was slightly nervous about shooting a scene with three major news figures and they were a little bit nervous about shooting a scene with a Hollywood star but all worked out well in the end. The film then wrapped production, but then it would it would be over a year until it was ultimately released. It had cost around $40 million to make, um, and it was earmarked for release in the US on the 10th of November 2010. Part of the delay was down to the aforementioned uh, reshoot work that was done on it. Again, not uncommon on big Hollywood movies or even middle, middling Hollywood movies, but just to refine one or two of the character moments, as McKenna had previously explained again do dig out the script notes podcast where I, I think she she's really interesting and really insightful when talking about her work the movie then made it into cinemas in november of 2010 in the u.s and the reviews were quite sniffy towards it now there was i i'm kind of i'm a huge fan of morning glory i think one of the things it's criticized for is for not being a heavily ambitious comedy i think it's a really effective one i think it's really fast i think it's really snappy i think it's really funny i think rachel mcadams is brilliant and i think the uh, the interaction between harrison ford and diane keaton in the movie is also brilliant However, this one would struggle um, quite a bit at the box office. 
when it opened it opened in fifth place uh at the, in the us it was the third of the three big new releases of that weekend so megamind was number one with 29 million that, that was in its second week of release unstoppable uh opened with 22 million skyline had opened with 11 million morning glory opened with 9 million 9.2 million dollars and that would be on its way to a disappointing take in the us really of 31 million it added about the same overseas worldwide takes 60 million McKenna would return to the Script Notes podcast as well and say post Weinstein it's not really a fi- it's not a film that she would write now the story of a young woman making her way in in the news environment has taken on many different turns since in the light of the Weinstein revelations and thus getting this film through the Hollywood system now it, uh, it's just uh, as McKenna said they just wouldn't try to do it I think there's so much talent in this movie though I think it's uh, I, I think as a showcase of acting talent a showcase of snappy directing and just really funny writing as well i think it has an awful lot in its favor it's no surprise to me that aline brosh mckenna has gone on to have the career that she had creating uh, most notably uh, crazy ex-girlfriend um, but also she wrote the screenplay to a film i really like uh, which is i think is really underrated which is we bought a zoo directed by cameron crowe as well it, it's a film worth checking yeah, it takes a little bit of tracking down, not always as freely available as perhaps you might expect. But I do commend both of the films in this episode of Film Stories to you. Which brings me to the end of this latest episode. So a few bits and bobs just to talk to you about. the. Uh, if you are someone who wants one of those 20 second adverts, I, I'm just putting in the middle of the podcast for the next few weeks. Track me down on Twitter. I'm at Simon Brew. My direct messages are always open. And just drop me a note there. Again, I'm trying to help independents. So if you're an independent filmmaker, an independent podcaster, do get in touch and let me just see if there's any way I can help and support you. You can find the Film Stories project on twitter at film stories pod the website www.filmstories.co.uk in the midst of lockdown in particular i'm putting loads of features and news stories on there every single weekday there's a ton of stuff going up if you can support that give that a couple of clips that clicks that would be amazing you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash film stories online a whole host of video exclusive film stories at youtube.com slash film stories and we have our magazines as well film stories magazine and Film Stories Junior Magazines. You can get copies of those and support our work at store.filmstories.co.uk. But for now, the most important thing is you all stay safe, you all look after yourselves. I'm going to go away, watch a few more films, and I'll be back in another week with the next episode of Film Stories. Until then, you all take care, and thanks, as always, for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 